Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This week, Edie's content editor Matt Mace heads back to the green room, the place where leading sustainability professionals strip back some of their corporate armour to discuss their passions, beliefs and hobbies and how these have impacted their view of corporate sustainability and responsibility. So it's been quite a while since we've last been able to conduct a green room episode and I think that's quite uh, indicative of the how the sphere of sustainability is kind of mobilising in front of our very eyes. Uh, every day of every week the ED News Desk inbox is absolutely filled uh, with new and interesting stories of trials and pilots, meaning that the Sustainable Business Covered podcast has become an additional arm for ED to be able to tell some of those stories and cover the news. And with so much on offer, we've had less episode space dedicated to the big in-depth discussions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Our audience, and who also happen to be our interviewees, the sustainability professionals, they're also evolving as this issue becomes much more mainstream and business critical. They're more involved with other areas of the company. They're becoming the spokespeople and ambassadors for their brands they represent. In short, they also have a lot less time to uh, dedicate a feature-length podcast chat. Um, but over the last few weeks and months, Edie is going to be ramping up its green room interviews. They've proved massively popular amongst you, our listeners. Um, and in the build-up to our Sustainability Leaders Forum next year, we are going to be running a lot more green room interviews with leading sustainability professionals. And first up in this prefer of interviews is, and I do hope I've pronounced this right, so do do correct me if wrong, uh, Marcea Balasiano. That's very good. Yes, I'm making you speak Italian. Marcia. Marcia, good. My, my Duolingo stuff was just about um, just about right there. Director of Corporate Responsibility at Relix, the uh, FTSE 30 data and analytics company. So, um, Marcia, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. In fact, you were actually on a guest on one of our shortest segments um, back in June, which was titled The Great Pacific Garbage Patch Swim and SDG Engagement. You were focusing on the SDG Engagement in that case. How are you and how have things been since then? I've been great and I've been very busy, focused on the 2019 objectives, corporate responsibility objectives that we have out there in the public domain. So there's a lot that we're trying to achieve and it's really about making sure that we have our heads down and make real progress on some of those things. And a, and a good example of that would be um, purchasing renewable energy, electricity, equal to 90% um, of our global consumption. So we've had this kind of scaling ambition to get to 100% by 2020. So it's uh, something that we are edging toward and, and been focusing on what's the best way to do that. So it's uh, the range of things that we're looking at across the full spectrum of how we conduct our business, um, those objectives are definitely keeping us busy. Good to know. And 2020 is a really short time frame um, away in, in the deadlines for that goals. And I'll certainly be touching on them um, shortly. But as is the case with the Green episodes, I think it's good um, to start with a little bit more information about the actual sustainability professional, um, the person driving the uh, strategy. And as such, I think it'd be great to get to know you a little bit better. Um, my LinkedIn sleuthing skills, for lack of a better term, tells me that you have been at Relix for just over 17 years now. Is that correct? Well, yeah, a little bit over 15. 15. Okay. Yes. Uh, so there you go. My skills weren't up to scratch at all. And, and so has that always been CSR related or, or did you come into the business with a kind of different profession? So I came and had a conversation with our then CEO uh, today, Sir Crispin Davis, then Crispin Davis, and he was explaining to me that, uh, as we were then known, Reed Elsevier was the result of a merger, and it had been over 10 years since the merger, and he was thinking about culture and how there could be some type of community program. So he asked me if that would be something that I was interested in. I had uh, just recently finished uh, doing my PhD at the London School of Economics, and I had been working at the American Chamber of Commerce, as it was then called, 
working with a lot of different industries, which was a lot of fun. It was a kind of happy situation because I got lots of flexibility and they didn't have to pay me a lot, but I got to see lots of different companies and it came to a time when I was interested in kind of settling down with an industry and, and with a business. So when I came before him and he explained about that, I thought, okay, this is quite interesting. Because when I was at the chamber, it seemed to me a kind of burgeoning interest in CSR, um, as it was then kind of routinely known, corporate mm -hmm. social responsibility. And so I said, yes, I'll raise my hand. I think I can do this. And it was, uh, it, it has been a great honor to be involved with this journey that Relax has been on today uh, since 2015 when we changed our corporate name with the coincided with the simplification of our corporate structure uh, because we were Anglo-Dutch and in fact just last year we asked our shareholders, our Dutch shareholders and our UK shareholders if they would agree to us being a single listed entity. So we are today a sole PLC uh, under the name of Relax. So, uh, I have um, had the good fortune of kind of seeing the trajectory that we've been on over this period, but initially it was about establishing a global community program. So the first thing I did was I went around to understand what type of good practice there was already in the business, and I found that there was a lot of stuff that was happening in pockets. Um, I also looked externally, so I got involved with some different networks and I talked to corporate peers. I wanted to understand who was doing what, what were they finding easy about developing this global community um, type initiative. So I was particularly interested in those that had a, a remit beyond just the UK. And uh, out of this kind of consultation, both internal and external, came a program that today is known as RE Cares, which we launched about a year after I started. And it is a program that I think has bound us together as one company. So today we are four areas of interest. We're about promoting science and health and technology through our Elsevier business unit. Uh, we also about are about protecting society through our risk business in particular, uh, fighting fraud. We're also about promoting the rule of law and access to justice through LexisNexis Legal and Professional. And we're also about fostering communities through our uh, read exhibitions uh, business. So we, in talking with these colleagues, uh, we determined that education was a kind of core focus. It was something that did link up these various parts of the business. and. I think it's quite interesting how companies evolve, just like sustainability professionals, and they change their shape a bit. So what I've just described in terms of those four areas, this is maybe slightly different when I started, but that theme of education has been uh, very much a, a focus for us. So that was something that we thought we should, we should look at. So within that, it was education for disadvantaged young people, and then since 2009-2010, with our current CEO, um, Eric Engstrom, he has helped us to really think about what we can articulate as our unique contributions as a business. So as I have just been describing about those business areas, and also under a kind of general um, framework of promoting uh, sustainable access to information. So that's what we've been focusing on, education for disadvantaged young people that advances one or more of those unique contributions that are unique to us. So that's kind of how I got started. And I'm very proud that today we have uh, up over 40% of our staff globally, and we're, we're approximately 30,000 people around the world. Where we have offices in about 40 countries, that that's the the level of engagement that we have through this through this program, and we know that that's good because we see we're part of LBG, formerly London Benchmarking Group. LBG has got a great methodology for calculating our community contributions, and we see that for our sector, it's about you know it's under maybe 18 to 20 percent. So up over 40% is something that we're really pleased about. 
but we're never complacent. I'm never complacent. I am always nervous and scared that we're not going to, um, that, that we don't slip back, that we continue to raise that bar higher. So that's how I got started. But I would say it was maybe about six months into my job that there was paper circulating around the office. We were being asked questions by NGOs, sometimes by investors, questions that no one seemed to know the answer to, like, where did our paper come from? So even though we didn't print uh, our the, the books that we were uh, selling to mm. our customers, and actually it's been a fascinating journey to see that from 2000 to 2018, we've gone from uh, having uh, less than... Um, in, uh, maybe about 20% of our turnover from online to last year, 74%. So this is very much a story of digital transformation as well, and it's been very exciting to be a part of that. But, um, you know, when we were looking at you know, questions like that about sustainable paper or how do we make sure that we didn't have children in our supply chain, there weren't you know, people who really knew the answers to those, mm. those questions. So I raised my hand and I said, I think this is all of a piece and I'd like to do this. And I'll, I'd like to change my title as well. Because originally I was director of community. Maybe it was like director of community engagement <laughs> or I don't ex remember exactly. But I said, I I'd like to change that to director of corporate social responsibility and then a few years down the line from that, I changed that again. I asked um, the powers that be if I could change that to Director of Corporate Responsibility. But um, So that's how my remit kind of expanded. Okay, that's um, a really interesting kind of almost backstory there. And it was uh, interesting that the investors were asking um, as kind of far back as in. You always get this narrative that external stakeholders have only started asking about sustainable actions of businesses quite recently. So it's good to know that that was on the agenda. And you mentioned a few times the, the journey and the evolution of the, of the business around that CSR. Um, and how, how about your, your team? I mean, were you kind of a, was it kind of a one-person band to begin with that's expanded since then? It, it, it was. It was just me. And then it was me and one other person. And we are still today a small team because that's how we like to run our corporate center. We see ourselves as a service provider to the business. And in fact, something that we do is every time that we get a request from somewhere in the business for a request for information where we can contribute to that or a contract renewal, we ask our colleague, how much is this business worth? And we can't say because we answered the question that that's why that business was won or retained, but we know that we contributed mm. to that because we, we don't want to be seen as a cost center. We really want to be seen as a service provider to the business. So we have a, we have a kind of simple way of working in that um, today we're about uh, six people, including uh, usually we have an intern for six to six months to a year. But we have these networks, and they're called different things. So earlier today, before you came in to see me, I was leading a call for our editorial policy working group. If people don't trust the content that we provide to them, then we don't have a business, at least in the parts of our business that really focus on producing content. Mm. So it's really critical. And those people are doing jobs um, at the coalface within our business. They're very close to the issues on the ground. So in the case of, of this network that I'm describing, the Editorial Policy Working Group, when we got started, we just said, who are the colleagues that would be interested in this issue? Because we don't have an editorial policy. We've got really great editorial policies in place within our businesses, but not one that is overarching for relics. So by asking who was interested because they have an affinity for the issue or because it was part of their day job, we got together, we set our stall out to say, let's develop an editorial policy, and we began working. And um, now this, this network is probably about seven years in, and we have, uh, you know, we continually update our editorial policy. And in fact, 
something that we're doing at the moment is working on training and where we're getting different colleagues across uh, those four business areas to talk about that editorial policy in action. But it's an example of one of these networks. We have them for environments. We have employee green teams. I've described to you about our global community program, mm -hmm. RE Cares. We've got one on quality, one on accessibility, one on inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. And it's an, uh, an audited number that in 2018, we had about a thousand employees who were part of one of these networks. It doesn't mean that they're on every call mm. and they might dip in, they might dip out, there might be attrition, people might have moved on or don't have the time anymore, but it's a way for us to, with a very small team, engage people throughout the, the company on the issues that we care about related to corporate responsibility. Okay, that's really good to know. Yeah, we, um, we've had a chat with a a lot of sustainability professionals, it always surprises me about um, how small the team is. You, you think it's, because um, it's so ingrained in the business, you think it's a really big team, but I think that's the point is, like you mentioned, that you kind of have these ambassadors and these networks that spread across the whole of it, which I always find really interesting. So it's great to know a bit more about the internal makeup of relics, but since you've been in this kind of, um, in this uh, corporate responsibility role, how how has how has the narrative changed externally since then? We were discussing before we kind of started here that you know I kind of came into this sector just as the Paris Agreement was being ratified, as the SDGs were becoming this big framework that companies could use. Um, and it seems that the conversation around sustainability and climate change in particular has really ramped up. But what what have you seen in terms of the evolution of of how? people outside of the company would talk about sustainability with you? Well, if you asked me, say, 10 years ago, or you know, when I was getting started, um, how important is this agenda? I would have believed and made a case for the fact that you know, this was mission critical for, for business and that you know, definitely integrated within our organization. But I do see that over time, it has increased um, on, on the agenda. And I think there's a reason for that. And it's not one. I think there is an interest from a range of stakeholders. When I talk to my colleagues who are hiring people into the organization, they always say to me, this is the issue that, that our new hires want to talk about. They want to talk about who are you as a business. If I'm going to come, especially for millennials or um, but it's not just millennials it's really mm. people at all levels they they want to come to work for a company that they perceive to be a good company and that has ratcheted up the agenda if we look at investors yes investors have been interested right from the beginning of my work with Relax, but it probably was the SRI, the Socially Responsible Investment Analyst that I would be talking to, but increasingly I'm talking to the mainstream analysts because they really are understanding that there are both risks and opportunities that will have significant impact on the business in the short and long term related to how sustainable the business is. So I mentioned in our discussion that I asked if I could change my title somewhere you know, a few years back from corporate social responsibility to corporate responsibility. And I'm quite interested in the terminology that people use because in a way I don't really care what it's called um, because some professionals like sustainability or um, you know, chief responsibility officer, or whatever it, it might be, it's all ultimately how you do what you do and maximizing the positive impact of that and minimizing the negative impact. But when you would say CSR, what I found is, both internally and often externally, people would say, oh right, I know what that is, that's philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And of course, making a contribution to your communities is part of businesses license to operate, but it's only one piece of how you are conducting your business and ensuring you're doing that in the most ethical way and ensuring that you're mobilizing your resources and your people and your skills to make a difference to society. So that's why I decided to kind of 
um, make make that change. But I see this kind of confluence of factors. So I've mentioned two, you know, our people, investors, government. Ten years ago, we didn't have as much uh, responsibility as we now do in terms of the reporting that we need to do that the UK uh, governance code says, our corporate reporting code says that we need to provide information on in terms of our, for example, our environmental performance or the fact that there's a modern slavery act statement that needs to be produced and needs to be available from the homepage of companies of a certain size, of which we are one. So these factors, I think, have joined together to help push this agenda up. And if you think about things like Greta Thunberg, this amazing young woman, um, you know, child really, she's 16 years old, who has captivated the world on issues related to climate change. Or you look at here in the United Kingdom, in, in London, Extinction Rebellion, this uh, network of individuals that came together from all different walks of life, you know, members of the business community, as well as academics and uh, NGO representatives, etc., to help to elevate these issues. I think it's just a, a time when that we, we recognize that it's, it's not just the business of business is business. And I'm an alumna of the University of Chicago, and that was said by Milton Friedman, one of the greatest economists in the world. Yes, of course, business. We're, we're not a charity. We're a business. And we need to be hard-edged about ensuring that we are producing the best products and services. But we are also about ensuring that we have a, a social purpose in conducting our business. And I think that is being increasingly recognized by this range of stakeholders. Has it surprised you, this just this change? If you mentioned, you know, you look back to 10 years ago. Has, did you, when you were working then, did you, ever, did you think you'd get to a point where there was so much noise and amplification around this topic? I think I could see that it was growing in importance, but I'm very pleased that there is this kind of widespread interest in sustainability and the impact that it has, not only for the long-term health of the company, but also the role that business plays in terms of economic development, uh, sustainable development. So I think I could see that it was important, but I'm very pleased that you know, it's continued to rise up the agenda. And when you have people like Larry Fink of BlackRock writing to the CEOs of the companies that they invest in saying, this is the most important issue that mm. you need to be concerned about. It just helps to mobilize uh, the interest of, of the business community. So I think uh, it's, it's, been, it's been good to see. Good. No, I, I completely agree. And yeah, the 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 numerous kind of people that are, that are come whether it is the the Larry Finks or the Greta Thunbergs, they come kind of become like talismans for for this conversation, and they kind of come from the perhaps most unusual areas or areas you wouldn't expect, which I found really really fascinating. And you, you touched very briefly then on on your education, um, and I I suppose. From the chat I've had with you so far, it sounds like a lot of your interest was that kind of um, that community base, that 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 fair education for for everyone. Uh, it seems to be one of the passions for yours. I, I want to know how or why you decided to get into this profession. Was was it something that you just learned through education? Was there kind of some family values behind it? What what was the story there? For sure, there were family values that were there. I was raised by an amazing single mother who instilled quite early that you need to give back. So I can remember uh, there was a lady who was in her 90s at my church, and I used to go and clean her uh, her house because she was no longer as mobile as she used to be and you know my mother said you know this is this is something that you that you need to do uh, because it's uh, 
a way of helping other people. And I saw that kind of played out in how she lived her life. And even though we didn't have a huge amount of means, that didn't mean that we shouldn't be giving back. And so I really kind of um, thank my mother for instilling that value. I also am quite interested in history, and I'm interested in the fact that actually, if you take both the United States and the United Kingdom, there are really great examples stretching back into the 19th century of companies that understood the role that they played in society. So in the U.S., I can remember going off to Pullman Village um, in Chicago and seeing how they began thinking about their workers uh, right from the beginning of making sure that they, they recognized that people were their greatest asset and they had to make sure that their people were well fed, that they had um, opportunities for leisure, that they had enough financial means. Um, in this country, the history of, of Cadbury and that idea of being good to your to your workers and um, ha being a part of the social fabric of a community. So I see that kind of link, which maybe we've forgotten or mm. we forget that there is a there's a tie between that historical role that companies would play and today. Um, and you know, I, I hope that, the world that we operate in today where sustainability is so critical that we won't see that a regression, a slipping back, that it will remain you know, part of how uh, businesses operate in the future. And one sign of that that I think is really positive is the focus on including sustainability, corporate responsibility in business school education. Mm. Because how we educate the leaders of tomorrow will have a role to play in how those individuals will lead those companies tomorrow. So if we say, yes, you need to really understand how to have a P&L, and you need to be really good at marketing, and all of the kind of core business skills, but you also need to be thinking about these issues related to sustainability, because if you don't, then your business is not really going to be there for the long term. So I hope that this integration of these issues and how we're educating the business leaders of tomorrow will ensure that this doesn't kind of slip back um, and, you know, we, we just focus on the profit motive. Because, I mean, profit is is incredibly important that's why we're in business hmm. but there's this other element of, of being sustainable and and having an impact positively on society yeah I, I read a survey a couple of days ago in fact about I think it was QS um, and they they kind of surveyed uh, 3,500 people across the globe about attitudes to kind of university degrees and I think uh, nine in ten said they would choose a degree if it had a kind of sustainability built in so whatever was core to the degree they're studying there was also that sustainability aspect so they learned how to essentially operate within the means of society and planet and and sticking on the education aspect just a, a little bit um again then we were talking about the the corporate role in terms of uh, society and community as your role of um, director of corporate responsibility, you, I mean, you touched on the target earlier around the the ninety percent renewable electricity. That kind of more technical side around energy use, environmental aspects is is that something that you've had to um, kind of learn and integrate as you go, or has that also been a kind of deep held passion of yours? Well. Yes, I, I guess in a way, when I started, I was a bit of an interloper. I mean, today there are universities, ICRS is a great network mm -hmm. that's out there that helps people who want to 
transition into working in this area mm. or if they are new graduates to begin thinking about how they can get the right credentials. But when I started, there weren't necessarily any credentials to be had. So uh, as always, I began just educating myself and doing that by reading. And I think the, the thing that I have enjoyed most about relics is the working with the people that I get a chance to work with. You know, we have so many bright individuals. We have a lot of people with graduate degrees, and and we have content within our business that directly relates to the environment. So I could talk with some of those individuals, mm -hmm. and then I also realized that don't be afraid to hire the smartest people that you can find. And um, Kevin Agnew, to give him a shout out on my team, who is uh, head of environment, is really bright. And so um, he and another colleague, Jake King, you know, we've, we've got two people um, of our relatively small team. We all kind of multitask and do other things, but they concentrate mostly on environmental issues, you know, keep us on the straight and narrow. And also what I was saying earlier about continuing to raise the bar, we need to constantly scale our ambition. And one of the things that I think is great about our company, we're not a change things 180 degrees between mm. one year and the next, where make it better year on year on year. And then when you kind of taught up those years, you can actually look back and see how much progress that you've made. So for example, on the environment, we have environmental targets, which have been running from 2015 to today, which will expire in 2020. And we're about to do a widespread consultation about what those targets should be. We're trying to grapple with science-based targets, particularly around climate. And we want to do our part to keep this to a one and a half degree world, mm. no longer a two degree um, increase from uh, global climate temperatures from whatever that date was in 18 something. So we've got to do our part, and um, we'll be consulting with a, a range of, of people, both internally, relying on some of those experts, but also gathering knowledge you know, through some of the networks that we're involved in, uh, like the Aldersgate Group, which is a really good network yeah. for environmental lobbying, for good environmental uh, policy, with a, with a range of uh, government representatives, corporate peers, NGOs, etc., um, that can help to inform, for example, what those targets should be. That's um, really succinct, and actually, it kind of answered my next question, which was about those those new targets and the target setting approach. You really touched on it, so I don't need to repeat it. But just as a as a preference, you know, what's it what's it like? A lot of businesses when they when they announce new targets, they set them. They have these kind of long term or or medium term at least timeframes in but they they know how they have to get they know they need to get to there especially when it's science-based but the the trajectory the pathway how to reach a target the business may not have the the means that they understand to get there they are targets you don't know how to reach which is, which is exciting but you know as a sustainability professional how do you take on that challenge well we try to do that in conjunction with others and again using the best practice that we can find and there's a lot of great networks that we're involved in. We're a member of the United Nations Global Compact and we're very proud to be uh, one of a small number of lead companies uh, for the Global Compact and we can hear from our peers, we can hear from people um, who are in energy intensive sectors about how they are approaching it. We're a relatively low energy company because we're mostly office based, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to be aggressive on our environmental targets. Um, aggressive within the framework of what's possible for our business, what's comfortable. We always have to be concerned about continuing to grow and advance our business. We're really fortunate that our chief financial officer is also our chief environmental champion and he came from an energy company before he joined Relic so he knows the tough questions to ask and he's been uh, you know, a really great sponsor um, and I think it, it, it takes that, uh, takes that kind of interest across the business and, and also you know, thinking about our colleagues in facilities who have a vested interest. They've been really, really supportive of 
you know, helping us to figure out how we're going to get there. So I think it's a combination of looking outside, looking internally, and then also engaging with colleagues. So a, a good example, uh, we're a founding member of something called the Responsible Media Forum, and we've had different working groups over the years, and one of them that has just been getting off the ground over the last year is on the digital impact of media. So we have our own data centers, but we also use external data centers. And it, you could say, okay, as more and more of your energy goes to the cloud, that makes you look better. So it's not my problem anymore. It's out there, it's somebody else's problem. But all companies have to get better at their scope three emissions, which is the share that's done by other people. But when we would go to a large cloud provider and say, can you tell us what share of our of your emissions is responsible from us? They couldn't answer that question and they weren't really so interested in answering that question. But by getting together with a group of other media companies or you know companies in, in the information business, we're able to have more of a more gravitas to be able to ask that that question and get some answers back so that we can understand um, what that share is so that we can begin to you know see how we can understand that impact but also work to lessen it okay that's um, that's really interesting yeah we, we've covered a few examples of, of data centers trying to become more energy efficient because they are you know they are energy hungry. That's it's fair to say, um, and uh, yeah, I suppose when you you think about scope for emissions from the supply chain or from the value chain, you don't necessarily think of data and cloud. You think of more traditional supply chains like agricultural. So it's it's great to see that a company like Relix has viewed that scope that 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 element that's outside of their control and said, actually, no, we have. A responsibility to do something around it, and and on that topic of responsibility, I think it's a good time to bring up the the Red X SCG Resource Centre. You discussed it briefly with my colleague Sarah a few months ago, um, but that's I think is a great example of a company, you know, going beyond its own four walls to actually try and promote sustainability to a wider audience. Um, but I think it's probably best if it comes from you as a bit of a recap as to as to what the the resource centre is and, and why it was set up? So the SDGs create a really great framework and I think we have to remember that it was 193 countries so every UN member state unanimously agreed in September 2015 to adopt this agenda 17 goals for the world so it's not a fringe thing mm. it's something that all the nations of the world said is important. And what I think is also great about the SDGs, the MDGs, those eight goals that were for the dawn of the new millennium in 2000, that ran for 15 years until 2015, that was very much focused on them. For those of us that live in uh, more developed countries, it was you know, something that we were trying to, to look at for lesser developed countries. But the SDGs are for everybody. Hmm. And these issues are global and they affect all companies and they affect all people. You know, climate change doesn't know borders. Um, now, granted, it's going to affect those that have the least ability to adapt to the effects of climate change, but it affects all extreme weather events that can be linked to uh, changes in climate they affect all parts of the world. So I think the SDGs provide this kind of framework for thinking about what we need to be doing over the next, it's gonna be four years next week actually, mm -hmm. from when we're recording this, um, that they were adopted the SDGs. Next year it's five years of the goals. And then you know we, we've got uh, 10 years more. There is a lot to be done. Um, I think it's Jeffrey Sachs and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network sees that there's a funding gap in the 59 poorest countries of the world of something like $350 billion that need to be found in addition mm. to achieve the SDGs. That's a huge sum. There's a lot to be done here. And so 
we began to think about, okay, if this is coming, if the SDGs are coming, what is the role for us? So it comes back to those understanding what the unique contributions that we could make. So at one UN Plaza, September 2015, while the General Assembly was sitting, we were across the street and we released a piece of research, Sustainability Science in a Global Research Landscape. How ready is science to support the agenda? So that's what we were looking at. And we were very lucky. We had uh, my colleague, Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, who was presenting the findings of this research. And this was really, it showed that there was there's a lot, there was a lot of good stuff happening, but there was a lot more that needed to be done. So when I was sitting in the audience, I began thinking about, okay, how are we going to do something more here? And over the course of the next year and a half, talking with colleagues across our four business areas, we said, okay, we're very lucky. We're in a privileged position. We will have an article, a book, a tool, a resource, an event that relates to one or more of this interconnected 17 goals. So what if we could make some of that content available? And so the SDG Resource Center was born. We launched it in June 2017, and by the end of this year, we hope that we will have a thousand content sources on the site, mostly ours, but also from UN partners like the UN Global Compact, UN Environment Program, UN Development Program, and we really want to scale the partners that we're working with and the amount of partner content, and we're also finding ways to work with uh, different parts of our business. So Mendeley is an amazing tool and hub for researchers, those who are working in science, to get together. Um, and at Mendeley, which is part of Elsevier, they have decided this year to make 5,000 sources uh, about climate change over the last two years, 2018-2019, freely available through the end of the year. So we're a gateway to that content. So. We're really proud of the Resource Center. We have huge ambitions for it. And there's something good for our business as well. It's created a kind of shop window about who we are yeah. as a business. So it's not, uh, we, we've been able to do it, put it together quite cost effectively because it's a labor of love for my colleagues um, who are working on it. And we, we really want to continue to, to grow this. And it's something that we can, we are uniquely placed to do. And, and as an example, our colleagues at LexisNexis Leveland Professional at Newsdesk, which is a really great product, which makes global news available, they built our SDG news tracker. You can find it on the homepage. You can get up to the minute news on the SDG in all the UN languages plus German. So you might be looking at um, SDG 5, for example, gender equality, um, and the first four articles may not be in English because they might have been coming out today in, in, other, in other languages, but, but you'll, you'll have access to that content. We also are developing original research. So just last month, we awarded the eighth year of the RELX Environmental Challenge, we have been funding entrepreneurs who are doing something to advance access to water and sanitation where it's most needed in terms of improved water, improved sanitation. And we put out one of our SDG graphics. So we want to know what's the state of science, so kind of picking up on that impetus mm. for doing this work in the first place, um, but create a kind of uh, one-stop shop, easy to look at graphic that says how much is out there, how good is that science, how collaborative is that science, because we are very interested, particularly at Elsevier, in supporting indigenous research. So the people who are on the front line of the, the many of these issues, for example, related to clean water and sanitation, how collaborative is that research? And we can see that the majority 
of the output from the global south is through the connection with the global north. But you can think that, but until you have a citable statistic, which these SDG graphics are providing, then you're not really in a position to say one way or the other. So we're, we're trying to do things with the resource center that you know, we are uniquely qualified to do. That's great to, great to hear. And the SDGs are, um, I really like how you put it as like a window shop as to what a company is representing and what it's, what it's doing. I think that's um, uh, a really good point. But there was a report that landed in my inbox um, quite recently that said, and it kind of builds on that point about how the funding gap, and it's basically that we're actually going to be like 43 years away from realising the majority of the SDGs. And I think the severity of, of the SDGs and climate change as, as topics and how you know short the, the, the timeframes are in, in the big scheme of things to you know deliver a prosperous world, um, does, it, does it make it harder just going to work on something that you are clearly so passionate about, but knowing that actually, you know, the, the hard yards and, and the, the result is, is actually quite far away from being realized. Does it, does it not just, um, does it not just, you know, dampen spirits sometimes? I guess I'm an optimist and I believe that we, we already know what the problem is because that's the first thing we have to identify what the problems are. So we know what they are. And we actually know a lot about how we can fix those problems. So we're, we're not at the beginning. We're actually at the midway point. And I have faith in the human spirit and the human condition of that people want to solve problems and that we might be procrastinators, of which I am one. But when we have to do, when we have to act, that we will. Now, um, should we have been acting a lot faster and a lot earlier? Yes, but I do feel, I do feel optimistic. When I go and, you know, to see my colleague, for example, at, at Shell, and I look at their scenario planning aligned with TCFD, mm. this Bloomberg initiative, and initiative with lots of other players, uh, interest of, of, of the UN, to help companies, particularly on the environmental side, to plan for this world that we need to get to by 2050, I am encouraged that they understand that their fossil fuels has to be scaled way back. And what does a blue sky scenario look like in terms of trying to make the changes that will that will see us get to where we need to be? So I... I'm really hopeful that what we've been talking about in our conversation today of this coming together of interested parties, you know, governments and young people and business and NGOs that will, you know, help to push this. Maybe it was unthinkable, say, five years ago, that we were talking about uh, Greta Thunberg, mm. and probably too much weight is put on her young shoulders. But it probably would have been unthinkable that we could say, okay, there's a there's a young person from Sweden. She's going to be 16 years old. She is going to capture the attention of the world in terms of making climate change something that leaders need to talk about. And we may see that certain states pull back, but I think that. Uh, I, th I think that over the longer term, you know, even states that may be stepping back from where they had been, mm. without naming any names, <laughs> um, that it's, it's kind of inescapable. You know, we will all share the same world, and I think that all people have the interest to have, be part of a prosperous economy, and there are differing opinions about what is the best way to do that in the short and the long term. But ultimately, I, I believe that... You know, people understand that action is needed to be action is needed, and and it will be taken. Great, and then the reason I asked, actually, in fact, it's in my bag, so I'm gonna um, cut it out because I've started reading a book, and um, it's just landed on my desk. I recommended it. This isn't product placement, by the way. They haven't told me to say it, but it's called uh, the uh, Uninhabitable Earth: um, A Story of the Future by David Wallace Wells. Um, and I'm only a few pages in, but he, he basically describing the um, 
the scenarios of what a 4C world would look like um, and, you know, what that means, not just for climate change as this kind of big, broad concept that people understand, but everyday lives about how, you know, up to two-thirds of the world could become uninhabitable. And it's the first, you know, quarter of it is thoroughly depressing read. And I was like, why am I, you know, reading this after work? Um, it's not making me feel great about the scenario. Um, obviously, it kind of outlines the importance and what you just said about how, you know, there is a human nature to band around an issue and really start to solve it. So it, it is optimistic's outlook. But the first quarter of it, I was like, I need to stop reading this and, and do something else just to escape for a little bit. Did you, do you ever have days, like I know you said you're an optimist at heart, but do you, do you ever have a bit where you can just go and, and do something away from work to, to unwind and 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 if so what what is that just to, to get away from it all for a bit um well i am very blessed to have two beautiful boys who are age five and seven and they keep me real and uh, i love spending time with them and a good example i we, they were brushing their teeth before bedtime this week and i left the water running in the tap while I just ran to do something. And they said, um, Mama, you are, you're polluting. So these little people are, you know, they, they help me to uh, have that optimism because they're so passionate, even at these at their young age, about, you know, how important these issues. So spending time with them is probably my greatest joy. That's, that's great. And it's good to, good to hear as well that they're clearly you know, in, in sync with the whole environmental journey as well. And, and you know, have, I, I found, and this is just as a, this is just as a journalist writing about the subject, that more people that I, that I know that perhaps aren't as clued up on, on the issues of sustainability and climate change will come to me and, and I can have conversations with them outside of work just around, you know, this issue. Are you, are you finding that's happening a lot more now that, that friends or, or, or colleagues that don't have that sustainability background want to talk about this more? Yes, I, I, I would say that it's something that people are definitely interested in and is coming to be something that will creep into a dinner party conversation or out, out to dinner. And I think it's a little bit hard for me to be neutral because people know my friends, for example, know what I do. Uh, so they're usually, it, it will come around to that. Uh, but yeah, I think it's when I open the newspaper, I can, you know, when I open the Financial Times and I don't even have to open it because often there'll be a headline story mm. um, or on BBC online news, which is my primary news source. I, I love the BBC, just give them a plug. <laughs> uh, and you'll see that there's a top 10 red story that's on the environment. That is great. That means that it's, you know, it's really... It's really happening. And I think we can't focus. I, I hope that your book gets better because if it's all a gloomy story, then that's when people really shut off. Mm. And if you look at someone like David Attenborough, who is this figure of trust, and if you look at the... Because I, I had a good fortune just yesterday to be talking to one of the producers. And in fact, uh, he was explaining he's working on a feature film that will be in cinemas in 2020 with David Attenborough, kind of follow-on from our planet. Mm -hmm. It's empowering people to understand how they can take action. So if it's you're just hitting them with the problem, kind of comes back to understanding what the solutions are. You have to help people to understand where they can take action. Now, you know, for me and my children, that's, you know, don't forget to shut off the tap when you're brushing your teeth because water is a finite resource. Um, or it is, um, you know, getting your EPC certificate, which tells you how you can make your home more energy efficient and more climate friendly. There, there are practical steps that, that we can take, and there's a lot of tools that are, that are out there. So, you know, we've been focusing on the, the climate ones, but, um, but it really is across the full picture of the SDGs, you know, quality education, making sure that, you know, education, which is so pa such a passionate issue for most governments and states around the world, m making sure that 
issues like that remain at the fore and finding ways to help to bring more young people, more children uh, into education, keep them developing their skills because the world is changing and I'm quite interested in the future of work and particularly the future of work related to sustainability because we're going to work in different ways. Mm. We can see that already. Again, you know, 10 years ago, how many of my colleagues worked from home? You know, today we need flexible working for lots of reasons because it reduces the transport that is required to get from your home to an office you know, across a major metropolitan area because you need to be focused on uh, SDG 5 and, and, and gender equality and letting people work flexibly because they have family commitments or, you know, so I, I see that we, we, we have increasing knowledge and I, and I really do believe that we have to empower people to find those solutions so that there's a positive upside. I completely agree. And, and yeah, a lot has changed in the last year as well. And that, that positivity is, is starting to, it's no longer just people watching Blue Planet and being, having this sense of like shock or people listening to Greta and being like, yeah, she's right. The, as you mentioned, the, the solutions and, and what can be done is starting to be presented in front of an audience now, which I think is, is really helpful. And, um, and maybe just to give a shout out to two organizations that I, that I really like, um, Junior Chamber International, JCI, is for young professionals under the age of, or up to the age of 40. And that is a very strong network globally. And in fact, we are engaged with JCI on a project to provide a little bit of funding for projects that have been able or will be able to use the, S- the RELICS SDG Resource Center to ed- push them along. That is a group of people, or young people around the world who are focused on taking action in the local community. Yeah. Or the other one I was going to mention is Global Citizen. Global Citizen gets young people to commit to certain actions and also kind of campaigning actions to win uh, points to do things like go to the Global Citizen Festival at the end of UN General Assembly week next week, you know, with an amazing concert with Adam Lambert and Queen in Central Park. You know, they really get the fact that you have to interest young people in what really speaks to them, things like music, to get them to take action. So there, there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad in the world, but there's a lot, there's far more good. And so I think it's about helping to mobilize, particularly young people, and to mobilize that good and, and enhance, you know, bring this back around to the beginning of our conversation with our RE Cares program and education for disadvantaged young people. You know, we're very much focused on how, you know, we can scale educational opportunities, um, particularly for the, for the least advantaged. And you know, get them to be able to, to see that there is opportunity. That's a um, really brilliant and positive note to, to finish on, I think, actually. And Master, thank you so much for, for inviting me to your office today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you for, for this hour, and I felt like we could have carried on for a, another two hours if, um, you know, I didn't have books to read and, and trains to catch. And the next time I'll see you will be at our Sustainability Leaders Forum um, in early February. Um, which is covering a lot of these topics. So it's nice to know that we have a lot of people in the room that are really positive around these big global challenges. That's obviously in early 2020, and I think a good one to finish on is because we are alarmingly close to winter, and 2020 is just on the horizon. What's your kind of your big call for action? Your if you if you wanted to kind of get one key message out there in 2020 around you know corporate responsibility, what would that be? I would say take a look at that framework of the SDGs and figure out where what speaks to you. If you're as a sustainability professional, understand what the unique contribution of your business is and where you can scale action. Business as usual is not going to get to this very ambitious endpoint that we're trying to reach by 2030 and there's 169 indicators that sit beneath these 17 targets so what 
do you have the power to change in your organization or what do you have the power to scale? Because you know, every business is doing something good. So where within this this agenda can your business make a difference and really um, increase activity to help drive the SDGs forward. I think that's going to be the one that I would choose. Good good choice. I, I fully agree. And um, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you um, at the SLF and, and a quick plug for that at the end of this episode. Um, our multi-award winning event will feature keynote speakers such as uh, Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, uh, Rebecca Marmot, which is Unilever's uh, Chief Sustainability Officer, uh, TerraCycle CEO, uh, Fermanich's CEO, and we'll have directors and senior managers from the likes of Interface, Fast and Fall, John Lewis, Taylor Wimpy, uh, Pret, Pernod Ricard, Lego, um, and of course uh, Relix, as well as many, many more. And uh, for those who are interested in finding out more, please do visit event.ed.net forward slash forum. Um, and hopefully you'll be seeing myself and uh, Marcy up there as well. As for the podcast, um, I hope you know the drill by now. You can find us on iTunes, uh, Spotify and SoundCloud or just search for the Sustainable Business Cover podcast on the ED website and you should be able to find all the episodes uh, on there. Um, We'll be back with more Green Room interviews uh, shortly, which will be covering a a lot more of this high-level debate around where we are in the the sustainability agenda. So, So please do look out for a future episode of then. And until next time, it is goodbye.